2: Uh, my friend said, You know, Professor So and so, this is Hillary Rodham. She's trying to decide between us and our nearest competitor, meaning Yale. And this professor looked down at me and he said, Well, first of all, we don't have a nearest competitor. And secondly, we don't need any more women.
0: Hi, Steve. Hi, Cheryl. I am really thrilled because we're going to have Secretary Hillary Rodham Clinton on the show today. We are actually not in the studio. We're backstage in Chicago at the Auditorium Theater at Roosevelt University.
1: We're literally in a very small room And there's kind of air conditioning going. We might even hear some voices from the hallway. That's how DIY this episode is. That's right. So today we're going to talk about that double bind that women find themselves in
0: when they are ambitious or they achieve things and have success and often are made to feel bad about that, Mm -hmm. to uh, explain themselves or apologize for their success. And I think this is something, of course, you know, Hillary has a very unique uh, vantage point. She's the only woman in our entire history who's received the nomination for presidency from a major party. Mm -hmm. But what I want to really talk to Hillary about is how her experience actually reflects the experience of so many women who are out there, you know, trying to become the manager at the restaurant where they work Mm -hmm. or trying to be the CEO of their company or, or rise in the ranks as an artist.
1: Well, it's funny because the way that I relate to this powerfully is both obviously having powerful women in my life like you, friends and colleagues, but I was raised... By a woman who was one of five women in the Yale class, medical school class of 1963. Mm-hmm. There were 75 men. And, you know, my mom, Barbara Allman, has spoken about on the show, and we've spoken to her, spent a life really at both um, deeply ambitious in her life, but conflicted and often afflicted by that ambition. And, uh, you know, not only did she graduate from medical school, Uh, but she then had three babies in the space of two years and she was faced with this choice, which a man at that point would not face. Mm -hmm. Do I pursue my career or do I pursue motherhood? And she made a decision to try to sort of split the difference, kind of like, you know, King Solomon. She she did her residency but only half-time and she did take care of us but not full-time and she regretted it or felt bad about herself for the rest of her life. One of the most chilling stories she ever told me Was So my mom and dad are doctors, they met in medical school, and then Dave, my older brother, graduates from medical school. And my mom calls her father, Irving Rosenthal, God bless him, and says, you know, well, Dad, Dave did it, he graduated medical school, now we got three doctors in the family. And, you know, her father paused, and then he said, who's the third? Mm -hmm. And it was just devastating.
0: Right. He couldn't see her that he way. He
1: couldn't see her that way. And maybe he can spin it and say, well, he saw his little girl, but that's not it. And right. any woman of ambition knows that's not it.
0: Right. Uh, that's such a disturbing story. And yeah. this is something that you see over and over, something I've seen a lot in my life. I was born ambitious. The first thing mm-hmm. I wanted to be, this is a true story, was the first female president of the united states wow did you did I ever tell you that?
1: You did not tell me that,
0: even on my high school graduation, my mom in her card to me said, you know to to the first woman president of the United States, and even by then i I wanted to be a writer, so I, I decided not to you know head in that direction. But it was my first desire, which when I grew up and looked back on that, that little girl that was me, mm-hmm. what I can see so clearly what that was about is that I always wanted to aim as high as I possibly could. I always wanted everything. And what's so hard is even now as I sit before you today and I say that sentence comes out of my mouth, I always wanted everything. My first impulse is to explain, to put a little asterisk next to that statement and say, but I don't mean in a selfish way. I don't mean I want to prevent anyone else from having other things. It's about me wanting to achieve to, to fulfill my greatest potential. Right. And, and I think that that's the hardest thing that, that I and so many women have internalized is that idea that we always have to justify and explain ourselves if we do have success. That's right. So let's talk to Secretary Hillary Rodham Clinton. So, Hillary, should we call you Hillary or I Madam think Secretary? Or Hillary se- would be great. Okay. Let's go back to well before you had a, a public life or you ran for office when you were the little girl, Hillary Rodham, mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. wanted to be somebody who had achievement and success. When are the first times that you came up against these ideas that, that our culture has about girls and success and women and success? By about
2: uh, junior high school, uh, you know, the the idea that I might run for my class president was just batted down by boys who said, well, you know, that's, that's silly. Girls mm-hmm. don't run for president, run for secretary. Or the same in wow. high school. You know, gee, why don't you be in charge of doing all the work and we'll be, you know, the ones elected to the positions. Even some of my girlfriends, uh, I remember one girlfriend in high school... Begging uh, the advanced placement uh, biology teacher not to post the grades because her boyfriend was in the class and she thought she'd get a better grade than him. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, all of a sudden you're editing yourself and you're kind of saying, "Oh, you know, I I can't go too far or I won't be likable. I won't be, you know, feminine. I won't be, you know, able to have a boyfriend. Whatever you're thinking. So that all began to be part of the background music um, in junior high and high school. One of the reasons I decided to go to a woman's college um, was because I'd gone to a very large public high school. Um, But I thought it would be very uh, reassuring, even, to be in an environment where women were the ones who made all the decisions. So my classmates were running the newspapers, they were running student government, they were running the clubs, they they were the ones who were in the leadership responsibilities because it was all women. And I had a very positive experience uh, with that and the the school was incredibly um, supportive and encouraging uh, along those lines. And then when I decided to go to law school, I once again kind of ran straight into some expectations. So uh, going to take the law school admissions test, and this would have been in probably, I guess, the fall of 1968 maybe. And the Vietnam War was really heating up and we were in this huge lecture hall at Harvard, where, which is where the test was being given. And I was there with a a girlfriend of mine from college. And the young men in the room were just mercilessly razzing us about being there. Mm. You know, you leave now, there's no space for you. If you get a seat, that means that I have to go to Vietnam and you'll be responsible for my dying. I mean, just this horrible kind of stuff coming Mm -hmm. at us. And I'm, I'm just putting my head down, waiting for the test to start to try to, you know, just throw myself into it and and not listen to this, you know, chatter. And then when I got admitted, um, I was trying to decide uh, between Harvard Law School and Yale Law School, and I had a friend, a young man at Harvard Law School invited me to come uh, to go to a cocktail party uh, that was intended to answer questions for people who'd been admitted but hadn't yet decided. And he was taking me around, introducing me to people, and he introduced me to a professor, a very imposing-looking man with a three-piece suit, literally with a watch chain across his uh, (laughs) stomach. And uh, my friend said, you know, Professor so-and-so, this is Hillary Rodham. She's trying to decide between us and our nearest competitor, meaning Yale. And this professor looked down at me and he said, well, first of all, we don't have a nearest competitor, and secondly... We don't need any more women. And this was the spring of 1969. And I decided, okay, I'm going to Yale because this guy has just basically told me that somebody who looks like me with, you know, my experience uh, is really not wanted, at Mm. least by some in the faculty. These seem like ancient history stories to young women today. Um, But in fact... The sexism and misogyny is still endemic, but it is maybe not so clear or so obviously blatant.
0: So we do want you to help us answer this letter. Oh, I'd
2: love to. Okay,
0: so you can just listen. Okay. Dear Sugars, over the past five years, I've been fortunate to have had a number of successes in my field. I'm a physicist. These achievements have been met with one of a few reactions from family and friends. Some of them are genuinely happy for my success. Others offer congratulations accompanied by fake smiles. If those were the only two reactions, I'd be fine. But there is another, more difficult response. On a number of occasions, I've encountered remarks from family and friends that feel sinister. There are a small number of people who want to diminish my success, obstruct it, or even deny it. The interesting thing is, I'm not sure that they're even conscious they're doing it. One example is a friend who proclaimed that I'd only been offered an international internship because I'm female, and the organization that selected me likes to encourage women in physics. This was categorically untrue. In fact, they thought I was male until I turned up on the first day of work. My friend and I have gone to being close to two people who have friends in common. She's someone I don't feel I can trust now. Another friend weaves subtle remarks into conversation about how, now that I work at a prestigious research institute, I'm probably surrounded by really smart people, and I'm no longer the top performer, and that I might feel inferior. I've never held or expressed any such thoughts. When I was awarded a prestigious fellowship, an aunt of mine responded by saying that she knew someone who was awarded an even more prestigious fellowship. It's important to note that I do not flaunt any of the good fortune that comes my way. In fact, I often don't even claim it as my success. I was merely lucky enough to have a good idea before anyone else thought of it, and I truly believe that there's luck involved in how grant applications are received. The news of my success tends to spread to friends and family because it often requires me to travel abroad for extended periods, or my immensely proud mother shares the good news. I'm not sure how to handle others' interpretations of my success, and there are sometimes obvious, sometimes subtle attempts to pull me down. I understand that my success may have the unintended effect of painfully highlighting the absence of similar success in others' lives. I also rarely talk openly about my ambition or my work ethic, so perhaps my success comes as a surprise to others. Whatever the reason, I need your advice. Should I respond to these reactions by defending myself, or should I just let it slip past because it's really their struggle and not mine? Have you encountered such reactions to your successes? Did this change with time as you became more established? Thanks. Signed, isolated by a good problem. And there's a P.S., As soon as I sent that email, it dawned on me how I sounded like a petulant child. I imagine I'll get little sympathy. Nevertheless, I struggle with this dark shadow that dogs my success to the point where I keep part of myself hidden from people who think I will react unkindly. Even though work is a big part of my life, I consider it a conversational no-go zone for some friends and family. The worst part is, if I don't know how someone will react, I assume the worst. It's not the best way to move through the world— making ungenerous assumptions about people, but I'm not sure what else to do. Interesting, huh? Sound familiar? Very, So very. One, her first question is, have you ever had this response to your success? Have you ever
2: been undermined in those subtle and sometimes not so subtle ways? Oh, sure. And maybe the best example is sometimes, and this started happening years ago, sometimes after I would make a presentation of some sort, uh, people would say to me, oh, you just make me feel so bad about myself. Wow. And when I first heard that, I tried to be really understanding and I would say, well, what do you mean? Well, I don't know. I mean, you just sit up there and you talk and, and, you know, it just really makes me feel bad. And then I realized that wasn't about me, it was about them. And I can't be responsible for how they feel about themselves because that's really what it's about. Uh, so I would say to um, the woman who wrote in Isolated. The, isolated, yes, yeah. isolated by a good problem, and it is a good problem. You're doing work you love, you're being successful, you're being recognized by people who have the knowledge and experience to identify someone of your talent and your success. That should really make you feel good. You're not being held back by the people who know anything about physics and about international awards. You're being held back by people who feel bad about themselves and their own lives and their own uh, really inescapable envy that they can't control when it comes to your excitement that you want to share with friends and family about what you're doing. I would say three things. First don't stop sharing it just don't take seriously whatever they respond if it is meant to cut you down or to you know make you feel bad about yourself uh-huh. mm-hmm. secondly there are some people who are just toxic stay away from them don't waste your time you know if somebody is consistently negative to you about who you are what you do what you're achieving then just uh, you know smile and stay away from them and if you have to be around them you know just try to You know, have as little contact with them as possible. Third, find people who share your interests, who share your excitement. Spend more time with your immensely proud mother. Uh, She'll (laughs) listen to you for hours (laughs) about what you've done. Uh, But don't let somebody tear you down. You know, I learned a long time ago, take criticism seriously. Like if somebody said, well, you know, that international award you got, I heard that, you know, they went through 10 people before they got to you. Well, if that's true, that might be interesting. But don't take it personally. Mm. Don't let somebody dump their junk on you and try to tear you down to try to lift themselves up because they don't have anything more productive to offer. And, and I want to say, you know, what we're describing
0: here is that kind of projection. People mm-hmm. are projecting their own insecurities, mm-hmm. but they're also projecting their own assumptions about what women can do and what women are capable right. of.
1: Yeah. You write, right. you write in the book, I love this line, we tell men to believe in themselves and we tell women to doubt themselves. And I would take that a step further. What men do with their self-doubt is they weaponize it and what women do is they internalize it.
2: That's a great way to put it.
1: And, and you see this in the letter because isolated, you're a brilliant physicist and five times over the course of this letter you say you're lucky you just stumbled and mm-hmm. wound up a famous, you know, a successful physicist over and over again. And you also see, and this relates to in your book, you talk so much about the emotional labor that women have mm-hmm. to do. You can see isolated trying to take care of people's emotions around right. her. Right. Even when those emotions are envy, they're toxic, they're seething with resentment, they're trying to tear her down, she's still trying to take care of them. So my question is, how do we help her rid herself of what is a good impulse, which is to be empathic and try to support people when that kind of humility shades into self-abnegation?
2: That's a great question and you can feel it uh, in uh, the way she describes the situation. She doesn't want her family and friends to be mean to her. So either she needs to practice her responses so that she's ready with them or she needs to stay away from them. If she can learn to say, well, you know, I think your information about that award is probably wrong because Mm -hmm. I think there were like 100 people who applied and I was really honored to Mm -hmm. be chosen. Right. So jump in the lake. Right.
1: Well, that's my question. Mm -hmm. She talks about defending herself. And the question is, is it actually a better practice and even example for women of ambition and achievement to say, I don't need to defend myself. That's right. right. You need to get off of your envy right. kick. If you got a problem with my success, it's your problem. Yeah.
0: Well, and silence is an answer. And this is something I have been trying to step into in my own life, that a lot of the ways that I have taken on that kind of undercutting and belittlement that goes on with women and success is that I have apologized for it or I've explained it or I've said, well, I'm, I was just lucky. Lightning struck mm-hmm. instead of um, you know, or, or other times where I've been defensive and said, "Well, I worked really hard and I did this and I did that," and and what I realized is both were diminishing. Mm-hmm. Um, apologizing and explaining, mm-hmm. and instead just smiling and saying, "Good luck," right. you know, just mm-hmm. saying to
2: somebody, "On you know, you know, onward you go." What yeah. you just said I to hope me you is find not something going to that be makes you as happy as physics that's right. right. writing makes yeah. me. That's right. But good luck. Good luck. Yeah. Yeah.
1: There's a real danger isolated in in not talking about your success and because it doesn't send the message that that's possible to other women and girls who are watching. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's a good idea to make it a conversational no-flight zone. Not you should be bragging, but when women silence themselves when they're successful, they're sending the message that they shouldn't talk about
2: it. But maybe she should um, talk with young women who are interested in science. Well, maybe the high school she went to or the college she went to or you know, some other uh, venue would be really good and she could invite those people to come. And she would be talking to young women who want to be physicists or biologists or chemists or astrophysicists or whatever they want to be. And she could talk about her career path. So talk about it in the context of being a mentor and a guide uh, to younger women. And then Those who are sitting in the audience are thinking, well, I didn't work that hard. I didn't didn't do all those hours of homework. I didn't seek out extra assignments. Yeah, she really worked for it. So maybe there's a a kind of bank shot where I don't have to tell you what I did to be successful, but I am going to tell younger women because they are legitimately asking what they need to do to step into into this and be a leader instead of shying away,
0: isolated. Well, that's, thank you for such wonderful (laughs) advice, Hillary. I mean, really.
1: You're like a sugar.
2: You really are. That is a really high compliment. (laughs) An honorary sugar. I love it.
0: So listeners, I know some of you have loved our live episodes that we've done a couple mm-hmm. times in the past. Yes, And that is where Steve and I go out into the real world in, in a theater and we do a show and we yes. take questions from the yes. audience and all of that stuff. I live in Portland, Oregon. That's where our next live show is going to be at Revolution Hall on February 27th. Mm. You can find tickets at revolutionhall.com. I would do it now. These shows have always sold out in the yes. past.
1: Sugars is produced by the New York Times in partnership with WBUR our producer is Alexandra Lee Young our editor and managing producer is Larissa Anderson our executive producer is Lisa Tobin and our editorial director is Samantha Hennig we recorded this episode at the auditorium theater of Roosevelt University in Chicago our theme song is Liz Weiss and our other music is by the Portland band Wonderly Find us at nytimes.com slash dearsugars. And please send us your letters at dearsugars at nytimes.com. That's dearsugars, plural, at nytimes.com. And if you want to read our column, every week we answer an additional question on the topic we discussed on the podcast. You can find that at nytimes.com slash thesweetspot.